Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored, the podcast with an almost fanatical devotion to literary filth. This is season five, where another 10 books would be scrutinised and weighed for rude bits. My name is Aoife Vrtnach, historian and perverted reader. After a year of reading like a sex-crazed Irish censor, I do feel a bit perverted. But I'm embracing the change and ploughing on regardless, all in the service of the podcast. I've even made merch, including stickers that say evil literature. Check out censored.ie for more information on where to buy them. And I always appreciate your reviews, recommends, or any way you want to support the show. To open Season 5, I've chosen Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. Mostly because it's one of my favourite books. Published in 1932, it was banned the same year. The censors were quick off the mark with this one, there was little opportunity for copies to circulate before it was banned. So while the Irish couldn't read it at all, it sold extremely well in the UK. In its first 15 years, it sold 28,000 hardback copies and 315,000 paperbacks. That's a lot of books. It was a staple of lending libraries and was an all-round popular book with legions of women fans. Nobody thought it was obscene, except for the Irish censor, of course. Anyone who's read Cold Comfort Farm will be a bit surprised that it was banned. Gibbons tells the story of Flora, a young single woman of reduced means who moves to live with her relations, the Stark Adder family. They live on Cold Comfort Farm in Sussex and rejoice in remarkable names like Judith, Reuben, Amos and Irk. Flora may be poor, but she's also shameless. She is determined to interfere in her relations' lives and put them all to rights. It's a comic masterpiece, actually, and it parodies a lot of different authors. Some are famous and respected, like Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence. Others are minor genre novelists, like Mary Webb, who wrote what were called agricultural novels. Then there are nods to Austen and Bronte. Personally, I think it's a delight, and its appearance on the blacklist mystified me. Once again, the censor's extraordinary lack of humour staggers me. 
how can a book this light-hearted, funny and pleasant be considered indecent or obscene? For my sins, I'm going to try hard to answer that question. But first of all, I must choose a drink to go with the book. I'm going to go for coffee, which Flora drinks a lot of, even though she is in the back arse of nowhere. It seems surprising that such a metropolitan drink is widely available. I would have expected tea or ale. But one of the most charming things about this book is that it's set in the near future, where people take aeroplanes rather than trains, but still drive horses and carts. The phones have video connections, but the films are called talkies. It's a curious mix of accurate 1930s elements and futuristic life. So good coffee perfectly captures Flora's sophistication and her ability to manage the world according to her tastes. And for food, there is alarmingly sentient porridge. Porridge haters will find this book really very funny. But to capture the breeziness of Flora, you should eat an apple while reading the book. When she first arrives in her room in Cold Comfort Farm, she finds a stash of old books and describes them thus. She liked Victorian novels. They were the only kind of novel you could read while eating an apple. That one sentence alone deserves an award. She's absolutely right. Not many books can be read while eating an apple. So why was it banned? At first, I thought this question would be hard to answer. So I sat down with my censorship head on and for the first time ever began to take this book seriously. In chapter one, I considered that Mrs. Smiling, Flora's friend, may have been the reason it offended. She's an Irish woman with a passion for collecting bras. But I refuse to believe that just mentioning underwear can be considered indecent. It's surely not enough. In chapter three, there was a bit more when it's the first of many references to flowers and sex. The ancient gnarled farmhand, Adam, but of course he has to be called Adam, says... The seed to the flower, the flower to the fruit, the fruit to the belly. I so twill go. And one of the many reasons I giggle when reading Cold Comfort is all the flower sex or sex in floral metaphors. Gibbon's characters take a coded way of talking about sex, the birds and the bees, and deliver the lines with a rich, lascivious leer. Or worse, there's a London writer character, Mr. Mybug, who fancies himself an intellectual. And he talks about flowers and sex in deadly seriousness. This is from page 121, and it's just so funny, I have to read it out to you. In this piece, Flora reluctantly accompanies Mr. Mybug on walk. They used sometimes to walk through a pleasant wood of young birch trees, which were just beginning to come into bud. The stems reminded Mr. Mybug of phallic symbols, and the buds made Mr. Mybug think of nipples and virgins. Mr. Mybug pointed out to Flora that he and she were walking on seeds which were germinating in the womb of the earth. He said it made him feel as if he were trampling on the body of a great brown woman. He felt as if he were a partner in some mighty rite of gestation. Flora used sometimes to ask him the name of a tree, but he never knew. Fuck it, that's so funny. I love this book so much. Is that not the best send-up of outrageous intellectual pretentiousness? 
it's actually a precise piss take of D.H. Lawrence, who got down and dirty with botany in Women in Love. And then Gibbons creates something called the souk bind, a medioppy flower that symbolises the lusts of spring and summer. More than symbolises, really. The plant is blamed for wild, ungovernable sexual urges. And all the other excessive emotional states like jealousy, revenge, madness and hate. The souk bind is both the cause and harbinger of overwrought melodrama. And it's bloody brilliant, because there's a fine line between fun and boring in a parody, but Gibbons manages never to be dull. It's not easy to lay it on thick while still preserving a sense of humour, but Gibbons really succeeds. And remember, this is her first book. It was so accomplished that one reviewer thought Evelyn Waugh must have written it. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked by my love for this book. I don't think the censors needed to read to page 121 to figure out what was dirty about it. The floral sex stuff ends up getting ruder as the book goes on because Gibbons builds up layers and layers of implied smut. But I don't think that first reference by Adam about the belly and the fruit, I just don't think that's rude enough on its own. So I read on hoping to spot something properly transgressive. And there it is on page 42, when it's revealed that Miriam, the hired girl, is due to give birth. And I'll read this little bit to you here. Adam Lambsbreath, alone in the kitchen, stood looking down unseeingly at the dirtied plates, which it was his task to wash, for the hired girl, Miriam, would not be here until after dinner, and when she came, she would be all but useless. Her hour was near at hand, as all howling knew. Was it not February and the earth that teem with newing life? A grin twisted Adam's writhen lips. He gathered up the plates one by one and carried them to the pump, which stood in the corner of the kitchen, above a stone sink. Her hour was nigh. And when April, like an over-lustful lover, leaped upon the lush flanks of the downs, there would be yet another child in the wretched hut down at Nettle Flitch Field where Miriam housed the fruits of her shame. Ah yes, we all know the fecundity of the landscape is mirrored in the bodies of women, particularly single serving girls, the hired help. The father of Miriam's child is Seth, the son and heir of the house. I mean, it's just perfection. Gibbons is playing stereotype bingo and I think it's hilarious. What's really ridiculous about banning this book is that Gibbons is slagging off a host of other authors with this storyline. She's not actually writing about unmarried mothers to explore contemporary social issues or question marriage. She's just taking the piss. Taking the piss out of great writers like Hardy and Lawrence. All that violent emotion and unruly sexuality are central themes of the really admired novels that Gibbons is parodying. Now, as far as I know, Hardy wasn't banned in Ireland, but who knows, Daniel Defoe was, so maybe I just haven't found him yet. D.H. Lawrence was banned, of course. Everything he wrote was blacklisted. And he was notorious for Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was formally banned in England until 1960. Anyone who hadn't read Lawrence might not get all the jokes in cold comfort, but if you've read... Austin and the Brontes, you definitely understand the roots of the parody. Because I want you all to know that you don't need to be well-read to enjoy it. 
This is not an endless series of arch in-jokes. It stands alone because mocking OTT drama queens is a universal need. And it's quite nice mockery. Gibbons is never meanly satirical. That's why for me the book is charming and adorable and deeply comforting. Or, in the Irish censors' context, indecent and obscene. So back to this dangerously immoral content. Once Miriam has had the baby, Flora pays a visit to arrange to have her curtains washed. And this is chapter six. All of it. It's just so funny. I wish I could read it all out. Flora knocks on the door and is briefly annoyed that people who lead, quote, what novelists call a rich emotional life, unquote, can't even answer the door without drama. Then there's a disquisition on cultural stereotypes around pregnancy and childbirth, before Merriam waxes lyrical on the subject of lust. Or soukbind, as Gibbons calls it. So I'll read this part from page 69, where Flora educates Merriam on the management of lust. Nothing will happen to you if you only use your intelligence and see that it doesn't, retorted Flora firmly. And if I may sit on this stool, thank you, no, I will use my handkerchief as a cushion. I will tell you how to see that nothing happens. And never mind about the souk bind for a minute. What is this souk bind anyway? Listen to me. And carefully, in detail, in cool phrases, Flora explained exactly to Miriam how to forestall the disastrous effects of too much souk bind and too many long summer evenings upon the female system. Miriam listened, with eyes widening and widening. "'Tis wickedness! Tis flying in the face of nature!' she burst out fearfully at last. "'Nonsense!' said Flora. "'Nature is all very well in her place, but she must not be allowed to make things untidy.' Now remember, Merriam, no more souk bind and summer evenings without some preparations beforehand. And there it is, the ultimate no-no for the Irish censors, contraception. Okay, so there's no mechanics or technology described, but Flora's refusal to see it as wicked is very dangerous in Ireland. Contraception isn't illegal until 1935, but information on contraception via the censorship acts, is censored. Flora's statement of nonsense is a ringing endorsement of the right to choose. It puts objections to contraception firmly in their place. And throughout the book, Gibbons gives cleanliness and neatness, deeply feminine values, the power of fundamental moral truths. Flora is tidying up the messy, overly emotional, wildly dramatic lives of the Stark Adders at Cold Comfort Farm, and by God, it's a good thing too. Because now that I think about it properly, I think this book is absolutely saturated with sex. There's sex in the city, when Flora recalls her time in London with sophisticated intellectuals, and this is a clear parody of the Bloomsbury set, with their liberal attitudes swapping partners weekly and investing a lot of energy in complicated love affairs. D.H. Lawrence's theories of sex and marriage are explicitly held up for scrutiny and you come away thinking they're quite silly. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But really, it's sex in the countryside that interests Gibbons, and her stark adder creations are all overly and dramatically sexual. Seth's mother, Judith, has an incestuous interest in her favourite son. He is the local, sexually successful bounder who spends his days and nights mollicking through the countryside. Mollicking is a made dialect word that means exactly what you think it means. Fucking. To contrast with these sexually incontinent characters, there's Amos, husband to Judith and Seth's father. He's a fire and brimstone preacher who terrifies the Church of the Quivering Brethren with weekly tirades against sin. I mean, the Church of the Quivering Brethren. How amazing is that? It's insane. Then there's a whole host of other sexually obsessed characters. Whether it's water voles or the land, the entire Stark Adder family are into inappropriate things in very inappropriate ways. And the souk bind plant, by the end of it, I felt like it might throttle you, like some carnivorous plant from a horror movie. There's just so much excess. There's emotional orgies all over the place. The focus of all the drama, the source of all the sexual frustration and disorder, is Aunt Ada Doom, the matriarch who broods alone in her bedroom. I know, it's fantastic. She saw something nasty in the woodshed when she was two, apparently. If you're wondering where you heard that line before, it runs through the Divine Comedy song, Something for the Weekend, that you might remember. And no, I'm not going to sing it for you. Contrary to appearances, I actually have a sense of shame. The woodshed seems like an oblique and terrifying reference to child abuse, but Gibbons won't let us take that seriously for long either. And this is from page 113, when the horror of the woodshed is slowly deflated. When you were very small, so small that the lightest puff of breeze blew your little crinoline skirt over your head, 
You had seen something nasty in the woodshed. You'd never forgotten it. You'd never spoken of it to Mamma. You could smell, even to this day, the fresh betel nut with which her shoes were always cleaned. But you'd remembered all your life. That was what had made you different. That, what you'd seen in the woodshed, had made your marriage a prolonged nightmare to you. Somehow you had never bothered about what it had been like for your husband. That was why you had brought your children into the world with loathing. Even now, when you were seventy-nine, you could never see a bicycle go past your bedroom window without a sick plunge at the apex of your stomach. In the bicycle shed you'd seen it, something nasty, when you were very small. Oh my God, that's so good. It's just masterly. The sordid secret is there, but maybe, just maybe, Aunt Doom is capitalising on her trauma. And you continue to read to the next page, the woodshed, which had been the bicycle shed, becomes the potting shed, and finally the cow shed. By the time you finish the chapter, you're fairly sure she's making it up entirely. Just a little bit about the author herself might explain Gibbon's sceptical reaction to a character like Aunt Added Doom. Gibbons grew up with an alcoholic, emotionally manipulative father. She recalled how, at the age of 11, she was sent in to plead with her unstable father not to commit suicide. At the age of 11. I mean, Jesus. And in the middle of his ranting and raving, she noticed he was actually smiling and the horrible realisation that he was enjoying the drama hit her. Lots of us are familiar with this feeling. If you spend time with drama queens, you know they get off on it. So you could say that her personal distaste for melodrama is reflected in Cold Comfort Farm, where all the drama is ruthlessly quietened. Previously, when I read it for fun, the tidying up of these emotionally incontinent people cheered me up immensely. But when I read it closely this time, with serious intent, I began to sympathise with the Stark Adders. I mean, I should have been on their side from the beginning because I love melodrama. I'm addicted to it only in its literary form, of course. I wallow in the Brontes regularly. Yet here I cheer Flora on in her quest to calm the Stark Adders. This is probably because I have a competence kink a mile wide and I cannot resist a managing female. But it's also the delicious Englishness of the text. At the beginning of the book, descriptions of the countryside are a vehicle for parody, and it's all very silly. Gibbons even puts an asterisk next to particularly strong, powerful moments of purple prose. And this is from page 65, and it's the aftermath of Miriam's birth. I'm just going to read this out so you can get a flavour of the crazy OTT descriptions. The cries from the little hut had stopped. An exhausted silence, brimmed with the enervating weakness which follows a stupendous effort, mounted from the stagnant air in the yard like a miasma. All the surrounding surface of the countryside, the huddled downs lost in rain, the wet fields fanged abruptly with flints, the leafless thorns thrust sideways by the eternal pawing of the wind, the lush breeding miles of meadow through which the lifeless river wandered seemed to be folding inwards upon themselves. Their dumbness said, Give up. There is no answer to the riddle, only that bodies return exhausted, 
hour by hour, minute by minute, to the all-forgiving and all-comprehending primeval slime. Primeval slime. I mean, this is just the literary equivalent of overacting. It's ridiculous. But in spite of lashing it on with a trowel, there is real affection for the beauty of rural landscapes in the book. In the very last chapter, Gibbons captures the lush perfection of a fine Midsummer's Eve with a lot of subtlety. After the craggy unruliness of the opening, the countryside has been softened and prettified to become, in my head, a picture postcard rendition of England. Flora has worked her magic on the landscape as well as the people. And she's proud she's surveying the farm and the land and she thinks to herself, I did that with my little hatchet. And for the first time, when I read Hatchet, I stopped. And then I did something fatal. I began to take Cold Comfort Farm very seriously as a text. I hate myself a bit for this, but I'm going to say it. Is Flora's tidiness and organising and interfering a wee bit colonial? Because if Hatchet made me think, her line about Seth's obsession with the talkies brought me up short. This is from page 83, when Flora is getting Seth to talk about himself so that she can figure out how to deal with him. She's in her information-gathering phase of sorting them all out. The talkies, do you? Do you like them? Better nor anything in the whole world, he said fiercely. Better nor my mother, nor this farm, nor Violet down at the vicarage, nor anything. Indeed, mused his cousin, still eyeing his face thoughtfully. That's interesting. Very interesting indeed. I've got 74 photos of Lotta von Schall, confided Seth, becoming in his discussions of his passion like those monkeys which are described as almost human. Hang on, almost human? What the fuck? Seth earlier is described in animal terms, but I interpreted that as referring to his sexual charisma and unconscious physical grace. But there's something nasty about that cool clinical assessment, almost human. For a moment, I didn't like Flora. If she thinks the Stark Adders are subhuman, she can justify doing anything to organise their lives. Now, obviously, Flora doesn't have to be read as a colonist here. She could be the educated lady who thinks her class gives her licence to interfere. Colonialism may not be the best fit when both parties are from the same ethnic group as Seth and Flora are here. They're both white, English, and in fact they're cousins. The bit that made me think of colonialism is the transformation of the landscape from foreign and hostile to peaceful and sympathetic. Is all that seductive Englishness a cover for colonial violence? Right, I'm stopping now because I'll give the whole plot away if I expand this argument. And I don't want to take this book too seriously anymore. I'll never read it while eating an apple again if I continue. And at last, we get to censorship bingo. Before I read it like a censor, I would have said Cold Comfort Farm might get 2 out of 25. But now, I'm not so sure. The first square, as usual, is breasts. No, there are no boobs in this. Gibbons wouldn't be into describing physical bodies, and anyway, it would be nearly impossible to parody the pert breast school of literature. Next up, bestiality. Even though it's in the countryside, there is no sex with animals. But there is 
heavy-handed use of the bull to reference sexuality and frustration. Uh, his name, believe it or not, is Big Business. I mean, it's just so good. Then we have sex work. Yes, one single solitary mention to prostitution when Mr. Mybug is trying to show how broad-minded and liberal and interesting he is to Flora. So yes, just one word. Racism. Yes, actually, Mr. Mybug's real name is Mr. Meyerberg, which could be read as a Jewish name. But Flora refuses to use his proper name, even after finding it out. So that's not very nice. I think we could take racism. Refusing to use people's names is definitely racist. Drugs. No, definitely not. Politics. Not at all. Swearing. Gosh, no. Its style is very polite and restrained. Think Austin, really. That's the tone that Gibbons is going for. Next up, infidelity. Well, yes, the London intellectuals with their open marriages does suggest infidelity. Crime. This is kind of a funny one. Because there are hints of sexual violence, and it feels like there could be a lot of crime happening. But I think on balance, I'd have to say no. It's just more a suggestion around the edges. And then genitalia. This is really where Gibbon's genius shows. There are no genital organs in this book, unless you count the extremely frequent and explicit mentions to flowers doing weird things. By the end of it, you won't feel the same way about saying the birds and the bees in polite company. A socially acceptable way to talk about sex becomes properly rude. If I was to be very strict, I wouldn't tick this box. But honestly, I think the book is full of cock references dressed up in flowery language. So I'm ticking it. It's not quite a magic cock, but it's a floral cock. Next, abortion. No, not at all. Orgies. I think that London freewheeling sexual freedom could include orgies. So yeah, I think we could tick that one. Sexual assault. Well, yes. Aunt Ada Doom and her Something Nasty in the Woodshed definitely brings that to mind. But there is a feeling that a lot of the sex is non-consensual in some way. Extramarital pregnancy. Absolutely, Miriam the hired help falls into an interesting condition every year. Masturbation. No, no way. Sex toys, oh God, no. Even the Bloomsbury set aren't that open-minded. Feminism. Yes, actually. Flora shocks her best friend by refusing to get a job and earn a living like a normal woman. So the life of a liberated feminist woman is rejected at the very beginning. You'd think that would make the censors crow with joy, but it obviously wasn't enough to save it. Next up, divorce. No, no divorce mentioned. Contraception. Certainly, yes, Flora tells Miriam how to save herself from Sukbind. And it works. She doesn't get pregnant that year. Blasphemy. I'm going to have to say no here, although Amos does bring in questions of religion and faith. He is part of a Bible-thumping sect, so I don't think it's a depiction that would threaten the Episcopal churches, whether the Anglican church or the Roman Catholic one. Oral sex. No, I mean, unless flowers can perform fellatio, maybe that was there somewhere, but I didn't see it. Graphic violence. Also, no. 
LGBTQ plus references. Now, there are no queer characters, but Mr. Mybug does throw the word lesbian at Flora in order to show how interesting he is. So I think I will take it for that reason. It's just one reference, but using the word in 1932 isn't that common, so it's worth ticking. I do feel the Mybug character will resonate with women for all time, by the way. He mansplains, talks about himself, and shows off in spite of Flora trying to stop him. Today, he'd be a woke feminist bro, and you wouldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. So Cold Comfort Farm scores 9 out of 25 in censorship bingo. This is completely unexpected. I had no idea it could be so rude. But now that I have tried to read it like a censor, I'm not surprised it was banned. It's just soaked in implicit sex, even if it's there for comic effect. Or maybe they were afraid it would encourage readers to seek out D.H. Lawrence. Though if anyone has the horn for Lawrence after this book, there's something wrong with you. Gibbons has no time for him and he comes off really badly. Sure, it's no wonder I love it so much, because I can't abide him either. But if you do want to giggle on a Sunday afternoon while eating an apple, I'd highly recommend Cold Comfort Farm. Next episode will feature a novel by Vicky Baum called Hélène. I'd never heard of Baum before I started trawling the blacklist, but she was a best-selling author in the 20s and 30s. In Ireland, she was banned at least seven times. From the point of view of the Irish censors, she was a very dangerous woman. Hélène was her first novel, the book that launched her career, so I thought I'd start there. Who knows what I'll find... Now, the next episode will be in two weeks because I have to scale back a wee bit to get other stuff done for the moment. Till then, keep on mollocking. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.